0: you
1: Some artists feel their art makes a statement on the world that is radical enough that that is, in fact, activism. But I really don't feel like it's doing the work of activism. I would love to think that what I write opens people's minds and maybe they can relate to it. And maybe it causes them to ask critical questions about themselves or be more critical about the world around them. But it's not activism. It's about that next step to get out there and do some kinds of grassroots work to actually affect change. We've always had writings of brilliant people that encourage us to really embrace one another and make this universe a better place. But we still have terrible things despite that. So art alone isn't going to cut it. My name is Anjali Jetty, and I'm a modern minority. <laughs>
0: but we're no one's model minority.
2: This is a show about all of you for all of us.
0: show, we're speaking with Anjali Jetty, a former attorney, a journalist, and an author who lives in and is active in the state of Georgia. She has two recently published books, Southbound Essays on Identity, Inheritance, and Social Change, and a fiction novel, The Parted Earth, about the South Asian partition, a historical fiction about the South Asian partition, both of which were published this year. And wow, they're really good. Her other writing has appeared in The Oxford American, Harper's Bazaar, USA Today, The Atlanta Journal Constitution, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. She's the co-founder of the Georgia chapter of They See Blue, an organization for organizing South Asian Democrats. And I don't know, she's a rock star. She's awesome.
2: And I really just wanted to talk to her, Sharon. What do you think? I think you really wanted to talk to her. <laughs> and I love talking to her too. She's absolutely incredible. I have to be honest, you guys were talking about how not a lot of people know about partition. Or you even mentioned at one point, Ramin, that when you mentioned the word partition, people are thinking of partitioning their hard drives. And yeah. I fell into that camp before all of this recent talk that you've well,
0: yeah, I won't shut part. up about it. <laughs> yeah,
2: you just keep talking about. And it's incredible to me that such a pivotal event happened in history that a lot of us don't know about and that isn't talked about. And I think having someone like Anjali on our show and giving the two of you guys really the space to to also chat about it from the different passion points that you guys have about it is so necessary. Like as someone who knows about it now because of you, but also as someone who doesn't have direct ties to that exact event, it's an important conversation and it's an important because now more and more of us are curious about what's really happened in history that impacts our families today.
0: Yeah. And what's funny is, I mean, that's what drew us to discovering and wanting to talk to Anjali. But after we booked her, I discovered that she was just very politically active and started reading her essay essays on racism and inheritance and activism. And that's where we actually spend a majority of the conversation touching on partition at the end. And we hope we'll have a few more guests where we can talk about it. But for now, we hope you just enjoy a very fun and ranging conversation with our new friend,
1: Anjali.
2: Anjali, it's so great to have you today.
1: Thank you so much, Sharon. I'm so thrilled to be here.
2: We're super excited. I know Remen's been nerding out on all of your things. and that's what I do.
0: <laughs> I love
2: it. <laughs> Um, So Anjali, where are you from?
1: So I have been residing for the past 14 years in a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia. And before that, I moved around quite a bit. I've been a resident of Delaware County in Pennsylvania for 10 years. I've lived in North Carolina and St. Louis and Michigan, where I was born. And I came of age in Chattanooga, Tennessee in the 1980s and early 90s.
0: Wow. As so a you... as a fellow Southerner, I relate a lot to that, but as a fellow Southerner who was brown, did you ever get a follow up question to where are you from? Maybe where are you really from?
1: Yes, absolutely, Raman. I feel like I've had that question throughout my entire life. Everywhere, actually, geographically, not just the South. But certainly, I think when you are what I sometimes call an ambiguous brown person, when <laughs> when you do not...
0: Is you that know, you a census form? <laughs> <Is> that a- <laughs>
1: Seriously, when people... See you, and and when I say people, I, not to stereotype, but more often than not, it's white people who see you and can't seem to place you in what they understand of sort of racial, ethnic demographics, and just general geography. There is always, of course, the follow up of of where are you from? Meaning anything from racial background, ethnic background. Some people really are curious about what your religion is. Whether, of course, your your resident status, right? People want to know a little bit about whether you are actually a U.S. citizen or perhaps a green card holder or perhaps uh, H-1B visa or undocumented. The curiosity spawns into various fields. And
0: sometimes um, there's a the guessing game, too. They, yes. they want to tell you yeah. where you're from.
1: Or, or they want to dispute where you're from. Right,
2: right? exactly.
1: <laughs> argue with you if you don't fit whatever stereotypes they, they see in you. I've literally had people argue with me that I must be uh, Egyptian, or I, I really must have some <laughs> Iranian in me, or Greek, or any of the South Asian countries. I've even been told that I'm Sicilian. In some ways, it's flattering to think that certain communities want to claim me, but more often than not, it's not really about other communities claiming me. It's really about people wanting to feel good about how open-minded they think they are. They want to feel that they are worldly and therefore can peg you in a category without any assistance.
0: Well, so Anjali, I I know you're very active in political action and community organizing, but you sound like a politician
2: because you dodged the second question. <laughs> yeah. Where, yeah. Where are you really from, Angela? <laughs>
1: that, that's so sweet of you to say. It's interesting because as an organizer, I float in between several different groups. I organize within the Asian American community here in Georgia. And of course, we all know that Asian American is a very umbrella term. That it's not the same country? Yeah, seriously, it's just, there are just hundreds of different ethnicities when we think of Asian Americans. And so it's a little bit of an oxymoron, I think, to be an Asian organizer, right? Because it's a group with so much diversity.
0: It's going to get you in trouble with the auntie and uncle party.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, it will. Absolutely, it will. And even South Asians, not everybody identifies as a South Asian who has roots in South Asia. Yeah. But it's interesting because on a daily basis, I'm trying to harness political power in the Asian American electorate at the same time trying to make it clear that we are a very diverse group of people and using larger categories is not intended to erase anybody of how they specifically identify, but just to harness that power into doing good. So I'm always walking that really fine line between what it means to identify a certain way personally and then what it means to identify politically and how to marry those two together in order to create some direct action that will ultimately reduce harm to the communities, whatever community referring to, and help people in their lives, in their health, and in their safety.
2: So Anjali, I'm going to ask you again the third time. <laughs> Where are you really from? <laughs> so
1: if we are going by the question that I usually get after I've gone a few rounds about living in Georgia, yeah. my father is an Indian immigrant. He came in 1971. And my mother is half Puerto Rican and half Austrian. Her mother, Gertrude, immigrated to the U.S. after World War II from Austria And lived in the ever since. She just passed away a few years ago. And my Puerto Rican grandfather, who died when I was very young, I was only six years old, his roots were in the Bronx, and we're not quite sure. When his family came from Puerto Rico to the Bronx, that's not really known. We're unfortunately not connected to that side of the family, but yes. So I am multiracial or mixed or whatever term one likes, you're American. I tend to just call myself brown to make things easier, yeah. but yes,
2: that is such a beautiful and unique combination of cultures and backgrounds. Thank you for finally answering the question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> That's
2: okay. Well, I, what was that? I've read the essays.
0: I've, I I relate to a lot of the essays growing up, but it sounds like you had a couple of awakenings of your quote-unquote brownness. The first one living in Michigan when certain shit went down in the Asian community in America, yes. frankly. Mm-hmm. And then but past that, Vincent Chen, spoiler alert, past that, moving to Tennessee, what are some early stories of your realization of being different, of, of being a brown American?
1: Well, it's interesting because when I was writing Southbound, one of the things that I had to go back to doing when I was looking at those various racial, ethnic identity milestones, right? When you become aware of certain differences and and who even calls certain things, quote, differences. But there were various moments. I would say largely up until the killing of Vincent Chin, I did not have a whole lot of racial awareness. I mm-hmm. was eight years old. I, he, he died I think six weeks before I turned nine years old. Mm -hmm. Terms I had used or I had heard of up until then were things like foreign. That was a big word. Mm -hmm. Someone Mm -hmm. was a foreigner, right? I I don't recall even people using terminology like immigrant, right? Or expat or Indian, just specifically calling people foreigners. I also hadn't heard of the term Asian American until I was probably in college. I, I, people were addressed as using using racial slurs, using calling everyone who could possibly look Chinese to someone who wasn't Asian Chinese, for example, depending on various political events, right? People would feel threatened by perhaps Indian people or Japanese people. And so that became the term that would capture everyone who could possibly look like a particular Mm -hmm. ethnicity, right? So the the words kept changing, but I would say certainly Vincent Chin's death was a, a big part of it because it was the first time that, I had seen a racialized killing unfold live on television. We were living 15 minutes away from where he was killed and from the hospital where he eventually died from his injuries four days after the brutal attack. And of course, this was in the national media as well. But once the national media had other things to pay attention to, it was still playing on our local news channels. And of course, the the process of justice well, of injustice. He never did receive justice, but the process of justice took a couple of years as well. Mm -hmm. And so we were just watching this on our television and I would read it in our newspaper. And that was when I really started thinking about what it meant to not be white, My neighborhood wasn't very diverse. It was a mostly white neighborhood. We had maybe one black family on my block and I had a little more diversity in my school, but I was really trying to understand not just what racism was and what it meant and who was at risk for their safety, but also what whiteness meant. It really was a moment where I was thinking, and again, not using the term "whiteness" as a child," right, but just really understanding finally how centered the world really was on whiteness in terms of justice in terms of whose version of the story is correct right um, but
0: but to talk about like the childhood experience, like something you wrote that like just hit me square in the chest when I read it, and it was something I didn't realize about myself, or I probably did, and I told myself to forget it was the thing that was wrong and we're all kids and we're all trying to fit in but wanting to be white wanting Mm -hmm. to fit in because all kids want to fit in but as a little brown kid a little yellow girl uh, etc like that that feeling of wanting to fit in and as you look back what's wrong with that (laughs) like oh absolutely can you unpack that a little because that just really it gave me pause to to reflect on myself when, when i read your essay about that
1: I remember growing up and coming to the realization that everything that was good, everything that was truthful, everything that was impressive or attractive was white. And I didn't see other representations of any other people besides white people for goodness, for example. And and, and I was raised by a very loving family who really did a wonderful job of instilling self-esteem. And I was very happy with my skin color and who I was, but it became very apparent to me at a very young age that whiteness was acceptable and that whiteness could do no wrong. And so I longed for that. I really wanted to be accepted in the same way as white people were accepted. Not that I wanted to change anything about me, but I wanted that degree of love and praise and acceptance and to be believed, right? If you were disagreeing with somebody white, they automatically had a credibility that you did not have, say, if you had gotten into an argument with someone on the playground, right? If you're telling the story and the person telling their version of the story is white, well, they're going to be believed. And so I saw that being played out every day as a kid. And I I wanted that very, very badly throughout my childhood, throughout my Teenage years, I I wanted that automatic credibility without having to prove myself, without having to jump through so many hoops to show people that I could be relied on, that I could be trusted, and that my point of view was important. And of course, you can only do that for so long. You can only play that game for so long, and it ends up biting you in the ass, anyways, when you do, right? There is no fitting into whiteness ever. And it took me a while, but I ended up coming to that realization. But it really was a childhood and a young adulthood of of trying to play that game with white supremacy in order to be perceived as something that you will never be perceived as.
2: When did you come to that realization?
1: It was definitely when I got to college. I, I still really thought I would be accepted. One of the essays I write about in the book is about a debutante ball in Chattanooga that I was not invited to a year after I graduated from high school. And I thought, well, gosh, I did very well in high school. I was super involved with community service. I was well behaved. I was good at a lot of things. And it really hurt me that all of my friends got invited and I didn't get invited. And in that moment, what I realized was not so much how wrong it was for me to not get the invitation, but how wrong I was to make that some standard for myself and to play that game by even desiring going to that ball. So yeah, that event was hurtful to me in the moment. But when I spent several weeks afterwards really pondering what it was that caused me to be so hurt and left out and feel so betrayed by the city that I had primarily grown up in, Mm -hmm. it was really about me betraying myself and thinking that I could have played a game to be seen. When I was never going to be seen and and realizing really honestly how much of my life I had wasted aspiring to these goals which were really just steeped in whiteness and were never intended for me to begin with
0: well so fast forwarding past this lessons of youth you wind up going to law school you became pretty active in terms of like the the organizations that you started to work with with your degree sure but then you shifted gears later on to then from law to activist, to writer, to community organizer. And so how did that transition occur? Like, did you grow up, know what you wanted to be and just chase a thing? Like, it's so fascinating to me as someone who's literally in the middle of rechanging what I do and what, how I think about the track that I'm on, but you had such an interesting journey. Can you walk us through the calculus of that?
1: Absolutely. So my father is a doctor. And of course, like (laughs) some Asian Americans, I don't want to be too generalized here, but I was initially encouraged to go into medicine, not to the same degree that a lot of Indian children are, but I was encouraged to go into medicine. And so I did start college pre-med, took a few classes. And then one summer I worked in a hospital and that was it for me. I realized it was actually not what I wanted to do. I was always told in college that I was a good writer and therefore I should go to law school. I'm not sure why someone would <laughs> would say that oh you should go to law school if you're a good writer. I wish somebody had pointed me in a different direction, but I did go to law school and I practiced for about 5 years or so. I actually had a really good experiences. I clerked in family court for a few years and then I had a position with the National Labor Relations Board in Philadelphia, investigating unfair labor practices. So it was interesting work and it was good work. But while I was on maternity leave with my first child, I found myself just being very compelled to write, and so I started writing. Then, went back to
0: what, work. What what happened? What was was it? Just the the being a mom.
1: But uh, yes, it was very much becoming a mom. I was one of the first of my friends who had had a child. I wasn't super young, but I was 28 when I gave birth and felt very alone in the world about it and was very confused about who I was and what my identity was as a mother and didn't have a whole lot of resources of people to talk to about the experience. And so I started writing about it. And my first pieces I sold to very small regional parenting magazines. And then I worked up from there. And then I had my second child. And with my second child, I developed a stream of income as a freelance writer. So when she was born, I then quit lawyering and stayed home. And then I eventually (laughs) had a third child. And by the time I had my third child, though, I had gotten into criticism. So I'd started... Review, we had moved to Georgia. I gave birth for the third time. I started writing criticism. And then eventually from there, I was writing books this whole time. None of them had found a home, but I was still writing books. And then eventually went back to school to a low residency MFA program at the age of 39. And got my MFA and really started expanding about what sorts of things I was writing. I started dabbling in journalism and writing about things like voting rights and other pieces of cultural criticism. And I found my way that way. And I've been involved in activism for most of my life, but I did not become an electoral organizer until after Trump was elected. And It wasn't just the fact that Trump was elected that made me decide I needed to do something more. It was the fact that soon after Trump was elected, I found out that Asian Americans had one of the lowest turnouts compared to other racial demographics when it came to voting.
0: Which is very contrary. And can you unpack the assumptions of why we think it's higher?
1: So I had those assumptions myself, right? Up until 2016, I just assumed that we showed up at the polls, right? We tend to, for better or for worse, we tend to follow the rules and do what we're told to do. And to me, voting fell into that stereotype, right? If you're showing up to work, you're making sure you show up to whatever you need to for your children and you would show up to the polls. And I found out that that wasn't the case. And what really bothered me about finding out that AAPIs were not coming to the polls and not voting was the fact that I live in such a heavy AAPI community. All of my neighbors and my entire neighborhood, with the exception of like two families, were Asian-Americans. My city is very heavily Asian-American. My schools are like 30, 40% Asian-American.
0: Yeah, something people don't realize. And again, Mm -hmm. it wasn't until I saw you put the stat out there that the South is only second behind the West Coast on having like a higher population of Asians.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's That's nuts. That
0: blows my mind. But it makes sense because uh, the uncle party, our parents, so to speak. Why'd my dad go from a job in Detroit to an architect job in Alabama? Or a dot, why would a doctor do that? Because there's jobs and opportunity there. Absolutely. And a low cost of living.
1: Absolutely. And many people also don't know that Georgia is really on the cusp of being a minority majority state. My city, my suburb of Atlanta, is a minority majority city now. So we have a lot of racial diversity and a very healthy. Asian American population. And when I thought about everybody has regrets, right? When Trump won, like, oh, I could have done this, I could have done that. Mine was really centered on the fact that here I am, enmeshed in this very large, vibrant Asian American community. And I never once thought that we weren't showing up to the polls. And so that changed everything for me. And then the next spring, John Ossoff decided to run uh, for the sixth congressional seat. We had a special election in June of 2017. He decided to run, and I joined as a volunteer for his team specifically for AAPI outreach. And we went out into as many communities as we could, and we knocked on as many doors as we could of Asian-Americans And tried to get the vote out. And that was the first effort that I'm at least aware of in Georgia, where there was a concerted coalition building among the various AAPI groups to get out the vote for that election. And of course, it only snowballed from there for 2018, We gathered around again, and and we worked our butts off for Stacey Abrams and all the down-ticket Democrats for those races, and it's only grown. And then in August of 2019 is when we started the Georgia chapter of They See Blue, which is a community of South Asian Democrats who are working to get out the vote in our community for Democratic candidates. And I've been super lucky in the uh, warmth and support not just from Asian Americans but actually from all racial groups in Georgia who have really supported this effort and and helped us mold this chapter and and I'm so lucky because I really think that the organizers here especially the AAPI organizers that I've gotten to know so well over the years are just, they've just really changed our community's political landscape. And people who did not vote in 2016 are now coming out in our community and voting in municipal elections. They now really, truly understand how important every single election is.
0: Something, and this leads to a bit of a South Asian deep cut, but you took some inspiration from the Tea Party. Can you talk about that and what party you created?
1: The 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 Tea Party is an interesting animal, right? This was basically uh, Koch funded community organizing, so it had like big corporate dollars behind it, but it was very effective in getting small local groups together and talking politics. And these were groups of people who were not necessarily ever talking about politics, but suddenly getting them interested in particular issues that they felt affected them and building coalitions around those specific issues. And I came up in a very white evangelical Christian community in Chattanooga. And so when I started reading about the the beginnings of the Tea Party, and how they began organizing, I realized how effective a similar model could be in the Asian community, where we also were not talking about politics at the dinner table. Some of us were, but many of us came from parents who absolutely never talked about politics and never got involved in politics. And my family was the same way. So we started to develop ways to mimic Elements of Tea Party organizing in our own communities by having small gatherings at people's houses where people could feel safe. We would bring in Asian American food. We would make chai. Come on, Julie.
0: What did you call it? I just needed you to say what you called it.
1: <laughs> okay, so some of the times we did it, we called it chai and chat, Right?
0: I, that's brilliant. So Sorry, like that's tea just so and awesome.
1: Snacks. <laughs> um, and I will say that I did not coin the term. I had stolen it from from someone else who was using it for nonpartisan reasons. And I thought, but that's what I'm going to call our
0: thing. Oh, own it, own it, totally. Um,
1: seriously, because I was like, that's a like, it's a catchy phrase, and it really lights people up. So we started doing these family style community events centered around food, right, which is something very important to the Asian American community, and it brought people in. And then other people who were guests at one event were hosts host the next event. And it not only was important for that particular election coming up, but what we found is that people were creating real relationships through these political events, right? They were becoming friends. They were staying in touch over text and over phone. And so then when the next election came around, People already knew one another. People already knew what to do and how to get out the vote. So those early days were really crucial to basically building an infrastructure for getting out the democratic vote in the Asian community.
2: So that leads me to this question. You've talked a lot about politics and how your own family wasn't super involved in that, but you've been so passionate and so active in this space Do you yourself think about ever running for office or being involved in a bigger way?
1: I'm so flattered by the question, but I could never imagine running for office. I will say this. I think the most important thing that anybody can do is match their passions with their skill set and do that job because you have a less likely chance of burning out if you just truly stick with what you love and what you're good at and what you can bring your skills to. Yeah. I feel like organizing is my thing. And I also love organizing. I truly enjoy it. I've met so many wonderful people. I'm inspired by so many other activists. It makes me curious, more curious about other communities and the world and how we can build coalitions together. I could never imagine running for office. First of all, I'm far to the left of the Democratic Party, so I would not, <laughs> my <laughs> positions on issues would not fly in a state like Georgia. But I I also just could never imagine even enjoying that. I, I have a lot of respect for anybody who runs for office. It is grueling. You lose everything in the process of running for office. You lose your sense of security and safety. Your family relationships lose out. Everybody misses you. Everyone is angry at you. And you really have to deal with a lot of abuse, actually. Today, we just have so many hateful people. And Mm -hmm. you have to deal with a lot of trolling and abuse. So hats off to anybody who runs for office these days. But I feel like my home will always be some type of organizing. It's just what I enjoy the most.
0: Well, something you said on another conversation was why you choose to organize versus just write. Can you talk a little bit more about that choice? You're still writing, you're publishing, you're submitting, you're putting those hours in. But you're organizing, you're putting the hours in for that as well. Can you talk about the difference between those two and the difference it makes?
1: What's interesting, in some ways, I feel like organizing is actually very analogous to writing. In writing, what are we doing? We are shaping a narrative. We are creating a story with some compelling plot. And we are thinking about things like who our audience is. We are thinking about things like character development. We are thinking about plot points and the climax and structure. And these are the same principles that we're really thinking about when we're organizing. Hmm. We are constantly having to be aware of other people. When we are in communities and I'm doing work and I'm going door to door, I have to think about every little detail of how I'm going to be interacting with a voter. I have to be constantly conscious and aware of how my countenance, my mannerisms, how I interact with people shapes the decisions that they might be making and the efforts they might be making to make those decisions. And that's what we do in writing too, right? We're trying to find the story But then we have to let the characters take control of the narrative, and we have to stay true and authentic to those characters in order to have a compelling storyline, in order to get those characters to make certain choices later on in the narrative. And so I don't feel that those two fields are very separate from one another. But I also feel this way, and I know a lot of writers actually disagree with me on this, or a lot of artists actually might disagree. Mm. I think some artists feel that their art makes a statement on the world that is radical enough that that is in fact activism. And that might be true of some artists and some artwork, but-
0: We're not really, all Yoko ono.
1: Right. But I, I really don't feel like no matter whatever, whatever it is that I write, I really don't feel like it's doing the work of activism. I I would love to think that what I write opens people's minds in some way and, and maybe they can relate to it and maybe it causes them to ask critical questions about themselves or be more critical about the world around them, but it's not activism. And so it's really about trying to take that next step and put writing into practice and to get out there And do some kinds of grassroots work to actually affect change. We've always had writings of brilliant people since the beginning of time that teach us this moral code that we all should try to adapt and be conscious and aware of and encourage us to really embrace one another and make this universe a better place. But we still have terrible things despite that, right? There was a lot of rich, beautiful, soul-nourishing art in the world. And then Donald Trump was elected. So art alone isn't going to cut it, change some people's minds. It's a
0: long-term play. It's The art will be here long after we're dead. And it might influence. There will be an MFA study on that book that you wrote <laughs> 30 years from now. Well,
1: but laws are being so. One can it. only hope.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, w- I want to ask about that. So Uh, We spent so much time talking about your activism, and that's what's fresh on my mind, because I just finished reading Southbound this week. But when we reached out, I discovered you for a very different reason. I, like you, have some roots in the subcontinent, and I've always had a passing awareness of the South Asian partition. And a lot of the books and research and oral histories and documentaries Mm -hmm. I've been reading were... Just that. It, I hate yes. to say it. It is some deep, intense stuff, and we can talk about that for our audience in a second. But your book is a historical fiction set in partition, and and I want I want to unpack that a little bit. But well, let's unpack that first because I have a couple of questions about the reaction to it. But sure, what led to you wanting to write a historical fiction about a thing that's been covered to death? No pun intended. You know. Yes.
1: Yes. Absolutely. So I'm like a lot of people. I did not know much about the partition. I didn't learn about it in school. I was forced by my parents to watch the movie Gandhi, right? Richard Attenborough's <laughs> film, his monstrous- Ben Kingsley's
0: half Indian, it counts. Right?
1: <laughs> his monstrous three plus hour film. And when I was in high school, I remember I found a paperback copy of Freedom at Midnight. And I just read that it was just a nonfiction telling of of the nuts and bolts of what happened politically, and on the ground. And and I thought, wow, I just went through all these years of school and never really learned about it. So because, because
0: for most people, Anjali, I just have to say this for most people, it's I think Indian was British, Gandhi did the MLK thing before MLK did it. Yes. And then India's an independent country. Yes. Bollywood Yay. Exactly. That's a narrative.
1: Exactly uh, that's all I knew pretty much same, same, I have no idea that 1 to 2 million people died that 15 million people overnight became refugees and that it was the largest human migration in the world like these these important details escaped me completely so 50,000
0: we, women were kidnapped Yeah and, absolutely and rape, yeah.
1: the the rape and the sexual assault too there there've been millions so i I didn't know much, and I decided after college before heading off to law school, I was going to start educating myself. So I just started reading anything I could. This was nineteen ninety five I was very late to adopt the internet i still I still was not even checking email and so what was available to me was what I found in bookstores and libraries and I started with fiction. And once I got to whatever I could get a hold of in fiction, I started reading nonfiction. And one of the things that struck me about the nonfiction in particular is that there were very few testimonies of people who had survived partition, meaning you might get a quote here and there. But I wanted to hear in-depth interviews with people who were survivors, and I could not find this. And so when I did start using the internet for my first job out of law school, well, one of my first searches was partition. I just decided I was going to try to read whatever I could online. And I, again, I pulled up plenty of material, there were a lot of articles, especially written during those early years of partition, and um, still not much in the way of testimony. And so I continued to read what I could and looked online and occasionally I'd come across a message board where someone talked about what their mother went through or what their sibling went through or what but that generation was
0: silent for so many decades. Yes, they didn't want to absolutely. talk about it. They wanted to put it behind them.
1: Absolutely. And then two things happened in 2011. I, and again, by this time I was a lawyer. I'd had three kids. I was writing, but I was only writing nonfiction and fiction that wasn't partition. I had absolutely zero intention of ever writing about partition. I was just interested in this era. And in 2011, two things happened. One is I discovered the 1947 Partition Archive, which is an actual nonprofit organization started I think in about 2010 and their mission is to collect the stories of partition survivors all over the world and when I found them it was like discovering a treasure chest uh, of information they had a Facebook page and they were putting excerpts of survivors testimonies there and I was just stunned and what I learned was that basically until the partition archive came into an existence there was no formal widespread effort to collect survivor stories. So imagine almost 70 years passing after a major historical event, and virtually no one is writing down the stories of survivors. Neither the Indian government nor the Pakistan government created an archive, and there were a few efforts in the subcontinent that didn't necessarily get much traction but the archive did and they're thriving today and they have historians all over Tens the world of thousands. yes yeah. taking these stories and so the idea of the book then once i discovered this archive was going to be not just the partition itself certainly i was going to include it but it was going to be a story that asks the question what happens when we don't know our ancestors histories What happens when we lose connection with our heritage? What happens when we don't have any documentation of what people lived through? And that's the question that I wanted to focus on. And when that idea came to me, then suddenly I felt compelled to write the novel because this was not something I'd seen, right? Partition told, in in some sense, three generations and 70 years after it happened, And I wanted to still include enough of the book to happen in 1947, but I wanted to ask the question in the present day, what happens when we don't know about our family's past and how does not knowing transcend and shape our own lives? So it's a story about people who survived partition, but it's also really a story about the descendants who didn't know what happened and who had lost the history very much in the way that the partition history had been lost for several decades. When we think about things like Hiroshima and the Holocaust, it took a few decades to get things going, but those archives happened much sooner. But for whatever reason, it didn't happen with partition. And we lost so much time in the process. And that's really what I wanted to write the novel for, was to talk about the passage of time and the lack of knowledge that descendants have of this part of history.
2: When you were doing your research for the novel, were there things that you could tie back to your own, either your own experience or your own family's experience around that time? Like, were there any discoveries that were made that may have directly impacted anything in your own family's past?
1: So, my own Indian family lived in the south of India. So they have no partition stories, right? They were in a city like what was then known as Madras, which saw an influx of refugees from partition, Mm
2: -hmm. but
1: otherwise weren't in danger. They ended up moving to Hyderabad, where in Hyderabad has its own very interesting partition story and that Hyderabad did not want to become a part of India. And so they were forced into it a, a year later by the Indian army And there was quite a lot of bloodshed there, but my family was otherwise not touched by partition. But having said that, I am very much removed from my Puerto Rican ancestry to the same degree that Sean is in the book from her Indian ancestry, Mm -hmm. in the sense that there was a tragedy in my Puerto Rican line that caused my grandfather to be cut off from the family And then he died when I was six. And so he died knowing the stories, being the cultural connection for me, and we are estranged from all of his relatives. Hmm. So I could write from the perspective of knowing what it's like to be cut off from one's heritage, from one's lineage, and to have that not be a part of your cultural experience. I I am definitely not culturally Puerto Rican. I really wish I was, but unfortunately we lost that entire line because of a tragedy and we never could connect again. And a young death, right? Sean's father dies young. My Puerto Rican grandfather also died fairly young. And so a premature death and being already estranged from family has caused this abruption in my family that I don't know that I'm ever going to get back. And so that was the perspective that I applied to writing Sean was knowing that experience of not knowing, of not knowing one's family line and one's cultural heritage.
0: Uh, So to get this out of the way, I loved the book, (laughs) but, and there's a massive but, and not just the actual story, the multi-generational and hearing your motivations and unpacking that is, is super powerful for me. But the thing that I related to the most was how relatable it was. Your book was not designed for brown people, like the way I read it. And I think that's been the problem with partition. Like, I don't know why people haven't been talking. I don't know why when you ask a friend, Asian people, East Asians, maybe, they're like, oh, like partitioning a hard drive. Like I've literally been texting friends. Mm -hmm. They're like, hey, do do you know what partition is? No judgment. but And they're like, what do you mean? I just Googled it. I don't know, right? I literally, I have 20 texts in the last several months of my obsession journey. Even though I knew there's a deeper story to it. But so why this book is powerful, because it is fiction, I I think it can get around the scariness of the topic. But, so here's the but, Anjali. Before I read it, look it up on Amazon, bookmark it, maybe get it from the library, buy it, use whatever. But I was like, I'm going to read this no matter what. I have to read this. Mm -hmm. But then you read some of the reviews. And... (laughs) People came at you, man. Like you talked earlier about the, I could never be a politician because people are going to come after you. Like how has that been? How have you navigated the criticism that you've gotten from people for this book? And again, I say this as someone who loves the book, thinks the book is necessary, thinks more works like this have to be created so sure, people will read and sure. understand them. But man, the internet's mean. I'm
1: I don't know what it is to answer your question, but first of all, I don't read many of the reviews. I read some of them. And okay. the ones,
0: You're better off for it.
1: Then. <laughs> so the ones I've read that have been negative, I, I think there's probably a hint of truth in, in everything negative. Obviously, some reviews are just downright mean, and it's not even clear to me if they've read the book, but I tend to find some value in all types of criticism. I'm a book critic. So I I don't think I get as offended or hurt by other people's interpretations. Like, I think I saw one review was like, this is so unrealistic because people couldn't have fallen in love during partition. (laughs)
2: You know, I mean,
1: people fall in love when they fall in love and (laughs) they certainly fall in love.
0: There were millions of people.
1: Right. At times Great. it maybe are not convenient. Right. So obviously stuff like that, I'm like, okay, well, there's not a whole lot I could do about that, but I don't think I get very hurt by criticism about writing. And it, it could be because I'm a critic myself uh. and I have written a few negative reviews and I understand that the topic is really sensitive and it could rub people the wrong way. And, but I I will dispute this one thing you said, and that is the book was written for white people.
0: Oh, no, sorry, sorry. That was, that's not what I think you did. That was my interpret. That was my interpret. It is a book I want white people to read. It is literally a book I want to give my friends who don't know what partition is.
1: Okay, because there are quite a number of people of South Asians who actually have not They just don't know about partition. It's amazed me. Even people who lived in the subcontinent, who I know who migrated here in their 20s, really have not been exposed to partition either. And we can go back and forth about why that is. I think it has a little bit to do with the tension and political relationship Mm -hmm. that India and Pakistan have together, which lasts today. But, but yeah, I feel that people, when they tend to write criticism and write negative things, I really Mm. feel like they come from a good place. And, and I also feel like it means the writing touched a nerve. (laughs) My goal as an author was to not offend people. I'm sure I did, but it was really not to offend people. I hired two authenticity editors to read the book. I then hired a historian to essentially do a fact check on the book afterward. I wasn't i wasn't going to play. I was trying to make sure I didn't fall into really harmful stereotypes to the various communities that are in the book. I, I wanted to, to make sure that I got the setting right, that I got the timeline right. But I fully accept the fact that one can go to the ends of the earth and try to hmm. craft a, a novel that is Fully realized and has these round, believable characters and can still fall short. And I'm sure that's what some readers feel. And I totally understand it. And I can't, it's not me as an author to be dismissive of that Mm -hmm. criticism. I, I think at the end of the day, I've learned quite a lot from sincere criticism about the book, this book and Southbound, both
2: books. And
1: in fact, other articles, my writing's been online for now almost (laughs) 20 years. So it's not as if I've not been harshly criticized online before. Maybe that's given me a little bit of a tougher skin. I don't know. But I I don't think most people approach negative reviews with a, a, a bad heart or bad intention and probably there's truth to it and when these books fade away from people's consciousness i will go back and i will look at all of them again and i will really think okay how can this make me a better writer that's my job right yeah at the end no, of the day i just want to improve
0: no I, again it's, it's more my own intellectual curiosity of like how to deal with the critics and the haters because it it is a book, and those, are, that... and
1: those are two different things, right? There's yeah. critics, and then there's haters, right? Oh, that's right. fair. That's fair. Because I, I think most people, and, and by critics, even people on Goodreads write some intelligent criticism, right? Like even Amazon reviews, people can write some really insightful, important critiques that are negative, right? The haters is a different thing, but I have haters coming after me related to non-writing as as well, right? I I get haters for political stuff, I say. So I try not to pay attention to any of the haters. But the criticism, (laughs) absolutely. I study it. I look it over. I use it to check myself. And I think that's important. And it would be, what writer would I be if I didn't do that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And as the great poet once said, haters are going to hate. So what I would say (laughs) is- The great
2: poet once said.
0: Um. But I can't say this enough because I just assume people knew about the partition and it's okay that people don't know it and unpack the reasons why they don't. But as I've been literally going on this journey of like, okay, what's the first article I send someone? Is it a Guardian piece? Is it a GQ India piece? And if people want to go deeper, what's that next thing? And to me, your book represents one of those next things because it's accessible. If it's not accessible, people aren't going to want to go deeper, like reading your book, I think would make someone want to understand a little bit more about it. At least I met him just go look up the Wikipedia article after you read the book.
1: Yeah. And, and I will say this, I appreciate that. And I will say that if people want another primer that I thought was a really good book, Yasmin Khan's The Great Partition, The Making of India and Pakistan, if you just want a general and not to say that it's, she's very specific and very detailed, but, a, a good overview of what happened and so and the aftermath
0: but i want to challenge you there Anjali, because i have that book and i don't know if people want to go deep yet i that that's the beauty of fiction and this is versus nonfiction is sure your fiction is accessible to someone who doesn't want to watch an god i hate to do this but like people don't want to watch a netflix documentary they don't and i hate that so how do you pull them in and uh, to me that's just the beauty of of well-written fiction with believable characters that people can relate to the love story so to speak like that is a hook and it works and it hurts to to see these things happen to people not statistics and politicians because i'm doing all the reading right now and um It was just, it was a breath of fresh air to read it. And I just have to say thank you for it.
1: Well, thank you. And truthfully, I'm one of those people too, who if I'm reading about something I don't know anything about, I prefer to start with fiction. That's how I've always been. And I I eventually will pick up nonfiction as well and look up some articles online while I'm reading. But I think those of us who are readers, I think you're right. Sometimes if you know nothing about a particular country or a people, the fiction often feels more accessible because you can get into the story quite easily and you can learn something on the way. And then you have a basis to to then look up information about it.
0: Well, yeah. the beauty is at the end of it, it's like, oh, shit, this really happened, right? Like that, right. that moment of this thing that these two people or these five people that I, I'm so invested in, this happened to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And yes.
2: A great a great love story is so much easier and more fun to read than than the tough histories that have happened. So. And
1: especially because you need some lightness when you write about yeah. some topics like this, right? A love story like if I hadn't written the love story in, gosh, that's a really tough It's a really tough topic to write about.
0: Or it doesn't end that well.
1: <laughs> right. Oh. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So in that sense, there's a little bit of a balance, right? And that's not to say there weren't happy reunions after partition and that people didn't find each other. or They did, there, there, but, but it was- There's a really
0: sweet ad by Google about an ice cream
2: shop. <laughs> so. Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> yeah, seriously. It, it needs a little bit of levity, I think, in fiction. It, it certainly would be too difficult for me to write if I did not have any kind of- happiness happening in the novel that would have been very difficult but yeah now, fiction is oftentimes the access point for myself in reading a lot about history
2: yeah if we were to turn back time and zap you back to a time in the before times prior to college what is some advice you'd give to your younger self
1: I would tell myself to do a better job of trusting my instincts about Mm. my interests, challenging decisions that I made, whether it was what to study in college, whether it was to go to law school, whether it was to get more deeply involved in community organizing at a younger age. But yeah, trust my instincts, trust my gut about what appealed to me, about what I was passionate about. I think when I was younger, I tried to do what other people were into, and and it took me a little while to find myself. So yeah, definitely trusting myself and my instincts earlier.
2: That's solid advice.
0: Anjali, I feel like I could talk to you for hours.
2: But I don't know, (laughs) Sharon, do you think
0: Anjali's going to be ready for
2: speed round? I think she's ready for anything. So yeah, I think you're ready for speed round, Anjali. I'm
1: nervous and excited at the same time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So Anjali,
0: what's something about you that people don't expect?
1: I don't think people expect, I consider myself someone who is funny. I don't think people expect that about me based on the kinds of things that I write and the politics I'm involved in. <laughs> I don't think people think I'm on Twitter screaming at Republicans and moderate Democrats even. And I think people are surprised that I actually do love a good joke and I love to laugh. And uh, that, that's what keeps me going.
2: What is a book, movie, or television show with characters that you relate to?
1: Oh, goodness. Okay, so I write about this in, in Southbound when I watched Mississippi Masala by Mira Nair. <laughs> Mira, Nair and yes, Mira I wish I could relate to Denzel more. He's such an incredible actor, but certainly that movie was a cultural touchstone for me because I had not seen any representation in the media about Indian Americans in the South before I saw that movie. So yes. So shout out to that movie, which is such a classic and I'm glad it still continues to find the audience that it has.
0: Absolutely. What is your favorite mom dish?
1: Mom dish. So is this a dish that I cook or a dish that my mom cooks? Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Both all of the above.
1: Okay. So I love making pasta. I would say that quiche is one of my specialties and my kids love it. What so goes
0: in what goes in the Anjali quiche?
1: So I'll do spinach zucchini, green onion, garlic, usually stay away from carrot. sometimes tomato with feta cheese or goat cheese and Mm. egg. And I'm recently gluten-free, so usually I'll do some gluten-free crust, but quiche is very popular. I also make a really good bean chili that's vegan and gluten-free and I love my pressure cooker. I love dried beans and so I cook a lot of (laughs) any bean dish, lentil dish. I throw that into the... Three quarters
0: um, of your ancestry appreciates that. Yes, (laughs) yes,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: What about your mom dish?
1: So there's two. So my mom makes a really mean Spanish rice and beans uh, to reflect her Puerto Rican heritage. And she makes Hungarian goulash from her mom's heritage. So both of those, I still am lucky enough to be able to uh, get from her. She and my dad only live a couple miles away. So I get to taste that goodness fairly frequently.
2: That's great. What is your least favorite food?
1: Okay. So I have yet to find a way to enjoy eggplant. I have tried everything. For a while, it was mushrooms, but I love like a good cream of mushroom soup. So I'll eat when I make it, but eggplant, there's just something about the texture. It's more the texture than the taste for me. I just cannot eat eggplant. And years ago, when I first became a vegetarian, I remember everyone thought that then eggplant was the one thing that you could eat that was filling. And it was just a nightmare, thankfully, now that people a little bit more open-minded but yes (laughs) eggplant I still cannot get used to the texture of eggplant no matter how it's cooked
0: it takes a lot of work to dress that one up I
1: does it really does
0: it's taken decades for me to get okay with eggplant (laughs) 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 and it's such
1: like a beautiful vegetable like right you see it in the grocery (laughs) store and it's like purple and shiny and then like oh just eating it is not I'm not a fan
0: who is someone out there that you would want to have a chat with on a podcast?
1: Oh my goodness. So I am planning on watching that documentary on Polly Murray. I've always been a a big fan of their activism and their writing and was sad that I never got to see them speak in person before they passed away. They're that writer activist that really inspires me to do better and to think outside the box. So yeah, Polly Murray, they're at the front of my mind right now. So that's who I would say.
2: And finally, what does being a modern minority mean to you?
1: I feel like being a modern minority is really fighting against white supremacy, realizing that we are in fact, not model minorities, and that that concept has been weaponized not just against Black people and other racial and ethnic minorities, but also Asian American minorities as well. And I I think it means coalition building and advocacy for all people, regardless of of where they're from and what their demographics are, just coming together and, and, and fighting for a better life for all of us.
0: Well, it's clear. That you live that in the work that you do, Anjali. So
1: I try. Be- there's always there's always room for improvement, but I, I try.
0: <laughs> well, Anjali, it's just been a treat to to talk to someone I've only recently discovered, but I I just have so much admiration for your work and your writing and and your action. And I, I hope we can uh, continue to stay friends and keep the conversation going.
1: I would love that so much. It's such an honor for me to be here, and I really appreciate y'all's in-depth reading of the books and your insightful questions and it's just really such an immense pleasure to spend this time with you so thank you so much for thinking of
2: me
0: and that's our show like what you heard please subscribe leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform
2: now more than ever people need to be hearing these stories please share our show with a friend or three
0: want to learn more or got something to share visit modmypod.com or email us hi mom at modmypod.com.
2: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
0: That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel.
2: And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony.
0: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
2: We'll talk to you soon.